Hi, thanks for being here with the Austin Connection podcast. The first thing you should know about the Austin Connection is that it is also a free newsletter. Join us at austinconnection.substack.com to find a community of people connected around the stories of Jane Austen. See you there. I went into a bookshop, a very well-known bookstore in London, looking for a book called Peter, was Peter Fryer's book called Staying Power, The History um, of Black People in Britain, um, a massive book. And it had just come out in paperback. So I said, oh, let me go buy that. And I went into the bookshop and I couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And I finally went up to a clerk and I said, I'm looking for this, new, this book. It's just been released in paperback. And she looked at me and said, Madam, there were no black people in Britain before the Second World War. Professor and author Gretchen Gerzina says she is drawn to biographies and lives of those who cross boundaries of history, time, place, or race. That's on her website, and her work is all about this. In books like Black London, Black Victorians, and Britain's Black Past, Gerzina bridges all of those boundaries for us, connecting us to people across time, place, race, and history, and introducing us to some of the Black performers, memoirists, activists, and everyday people in Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries. This is the Austin Connection. Professor Garzina joined me recently by Zoom, and we talked about the lives of some of these Black residents of Britain historically, how she is helping to unearth and revision the stories about their lives, and how contemporary fictionalizations of Regency England in series like PBS's Sanditon and Bridgerton capture these stories, or not. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. So... You know, I have been um, pouring through uh, your books and um, was really, I really enjoyed uh, the Black London. And um, one thing that I was amazed by was just the the writing. I mean, it's just really beautiful the way that you write about what you're doing, reconstructing, repainting history in a way um, you say to sort of illuminate the unseen vistas of people and places that are part of British history and part of all of our world history, um, really illuminating the stories and the people and the community of Black women and men in Regency era in 18th and 19th century Britain. So would you just talk first, um, Professor Grazina, about that illuminating the unseen? In what ways has this history been erased? And in what ways are you still trying to sort of uncover that history? So the book that book was published 25 years ago or so. Um, it's still being read all the time. And in fact, it's available as a free download um, through the Dartmouth College Library. Um, and it stays in people's minds. The, the reason I wrote it was that I was actually working on a very different book. And I went into, I, I think I say this in the introduction, I went into a bookshop, a very well-known bookstore in London, looking for a book called Peter, was Peter Fryer's book called Staying Power, The History um, of Black People in Britain, um, a massive book. And 
it had just come out in paperback. So I said, oh, let me go buy that. And I went into the bookshop and I couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And I finally went up to a clerk and I said, I'm looking for this new, this book. It's just been released in paperback. And she looked at me and said, Madam, there were no black people in Britain before the Second World War. And I said, well, no, that's not true. And she said, well, yes, and no numbers. So it, it, I got so angry. I never found the book. I mean, I went to another bookshop and it was right there. Um, but I, I got so angry that I went home and put aside the book I was working on and wrote Black London. Now, I wasn't the first to write about this. Other people have written about it. And I wanted to both consolidate some of their research, go back to their research and relook at everything that I could find, and then try to tell this story of Black people living in England. It was supposed to be called Black London. It was called Black London here, but in England, it was published as Black England. And of course, okay. the reviewers said, the reviewers all said, well, this is all about London. Why are you not calling it Black London? Which was kind of amusing. <laughs> but um, so, you know, I've been in this business now for, you know, among other the other books I've done, not just Black British history. I've done, I'm a biographer. So, um, but I wanted to make people see that, you know, to see that these people were walking the same streets, were living in the same neighborhoods. And I wanted to make it a living, breathing history. Now, a lot of other people are working on this now and have done for a long time. But when I first started working on it, there weren't as many and it wasn't known. And even now, it's not so much that it's been erased as had been forgotten. People didn't quite realize that, that there had been a black British history that goes back as far as the Romans. Um, and they're still finding, they're excavating, you know, old Roman encampments and finding black African uh, nobility women um, and they are doing documentaries on it. I've been in a few. Um, so it's become quite a well-known um, issue now, although there's still a great sense of many British people wanting not to, to understand or believe that past. Interesting. So I suppose, as you say, this was almost 25 years ago yeah. uh, that Black London came out, you know, you, you mentioned in the BBC series that you did, um, mm -hmm. Britain's Black Past, right? Um, that, that uh, you mentioned that it's a detective job. You said this mm -hmm. in the series, yeah. um, finding these stories. How, how have you managed to find the stories mm -hmm. that you found? And what was it like putting that into a series, uh, for audio series? That was wonderful. And of course it, it became a book, which was published with all the new research came out last year. Um, so I was able to update a lot of the things that have the people I met with. You know, I've got to say, you're in radio. Um, these producers who work for, the, who have these independent companies and do think productions for BBC, they're incredible researchers. They sometimes find people that I hadn't been able to find because we academics think in a very different kind of way than um, radio and television producers who are out there finding people. So they actually, I knew a lot of the people and we went to some of the places, um, but they were able to find some people I didn't know about. And they were incredible stories that, um, and people I, I still work with now who, who did some of those stories that 
you know, I think I, I was supposed to originally spend six months doing it, and then I was about to change jobs, and I only had one month, so I think I, I traveled all over Britain in one month doing the entire series. I, I, I would wake up in London and get on the train to Glasgow, spend the afternoon in Glasgow, come back to London. The next day, I go to Bristol. You know, it kind yes. of went on and on like that. That's um, a, but some that's of a the, really some fun of part of it. That's yeah, that's it really fun. fun. Yeah, I was very tired. For the listener. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great part for that. Um, but to go to some of these places, to really stand in the houses or on the shore, where you and we at one place the the tide comes in so fast that we only had a tiny window. Um, it was the same place where I don't know if you knew this story where the was it Chinese people who were um, harvesting winkles and other things there were drowned because the tide came in so fast. Mm -hmm. um, and that made me a little nervous. In fact, they were, that was a kind of wonderful experience because this story was about a 14 year old boy. It was horrible. He had been put off the ship. He, and um, his master left him there and he ended up dying um, and he couldn't be buried in the local parish because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't of the parish. And so they put a shrine and they built a little shrine for him on the shore and people still come and put oh, wow. rocks and shells, school children. You can see all the things they put there. So there we are, I'm worried about the tide coming in, you know, watching the sea. And it's just surrounded by a kind of fence, a wire fence in this little grave. And we're talking and, you know, with the boom and everything else. And there was a whole herd of cows behind me. <laughs> and they were fascinated by this. And I was a little nervous. And they just kept creeping closer and closer until I could actually <laughs> feel their breath on my neck. <laughs> they were mostly curious. There were no bulls. I looked. I was living in Vermont at the time, so I was familiar with cows. Um, <laughs> but it, it was a, quite an adventure to, to unearth some of these stories and to, to see how, for many people, these stories still last. People still really care. What stories uh, have fascinated you? What have you been with so many individual stories that are mm. wonderful to hear? Um, but what have you found most surprising and exciting to, to discover? Well, there's one, maybe it's one of the ones you're gonna ask about, which is Nathaniel Wells. Um, mm. And I resisted using that story, um, but they really pushed me because I hadn't really known it before. Nathaniel Wells was a, the son of a slave owner. He was a mixed race. So he was the son of a slave and a slave owner. The owner um, did not have, and he had daughters, but no legitimate sons. So that in order to be an heir, he made, to, to leave his money, he left this money to this mixed race son of his. He sent him off to England to be educated as many slave owners did with their mixed race children. And he went to a boarding school and he studied. Um, and then he died when, with, so Nathaniel was only 20 or 21 when he became the heir. Um, he, he spent a lot of money. He was a young guy and he moved to Wales to Chepstow. And he used the money to buy this enormous um, place. He, built this incredible house. He had acres upon acres of this scenic land that was so gorgeous that it became a kind of pleasure ground and people would come. There was like an open day and they could come and walk through the parks and all of the mountains. And it was quite something. Um, 
but he made his money. He, his money came from this slave plantation. And in mm -hmm. fact, his mother owned slaves, his mother who had been herself enslaved. And I was very reluctant to tell the story of a, essentially a black or mixed race slave owner living in Britain. Um, he married a succession of, well, two white women, because you know women had so many babies in those days they wore out. So I think he had six by one and eight by the next one after she died. And um, his house is a ruin now, but he became the first black sheriff in Britain um, he had this enormous wealth. Um, he didn't die with a lot of money, um, but his story was one I never expected to find. Yes. And I guess this, you know, the one in my heart is always Ignatius Sancho, who's now been a play and everything. Yes, <laughs> yes. Why, why is he the one in your heart? <laughs> well, because he, he, he was so amusing and so serious mm. at the same time. He, he became he wrote these, he, he was brought as an enslaved child. He managed to get away. He was taken in by the Montague family, finally, away from these three witches, I think people call them now, who had owned him, didn't want him to read. So they took him in, he was educated, and he became a butler in their house for many, many years. And then he was a little on the heavy side, and then finally couldn't continue to do all his work. So they gave him a pension and some money and he moved to London and he lived, he set up a shop in Westminster, right near the heart of everything of the movers and shakers of British, you know, um, aristocracy and politics. And people would come into his shop. He married a black woman, which was unusual at the time. And he wrote these letters and he knew everybody. I mean, they would come in and talk to him. Lawrence Stern, um, he wrote to Lawrence Stern and said, if you're writing Tristram Shandy, please say something about slavery in here. And he did. Um, he had his portrait painted by Gainsborough. Um, and it's quite a beautiful portrait. It's unfortunately in Canada, the British realized they made a mistake or trying to get it back. I don't think they're going to get it. Ooh, um, interesting. Yeah. Well, it's been for a long time. They're trying hard. Okay. But um, I, I think that they, it would command a great deal of a high, very high price. Um, and he was just somebody that people were so fascinated with. So all of his letters have been published. Um, his son arranged that they get published after he died. And he's still considered just a huge character. I mean, he, he, had his, he saw the Gordon riots and wrote about them in his letters. He knew people um, and he, he was kind of the face of 18th century Britain in some ways, even though he's a black man. He was also yes. the first black man ever to vote in England. So many of these people um, were close to uh, influential people. And so therefore having an influence, as you point out, they're the easier ones and the people who are able to write their own lives. You point this out, that they're easier to unearth and to find um, the so many of the experiences of black residents of, of London during this time were below the below stairs or quietly or mm -hmm. really by necessity a lot of the time having right. to be under the radar even their success needed to be under the radar for ways that mm -hmm. history has reasons that history has shown it's it's hard because you can't you know for instance the British census doesn't list race mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
when I first published Black London, someone re some reviewers said that I should have gone to all the rent rolls and seen who was Black, but the rent rolls don't necessarily indicate race. It's really hard to find. But the same thing happens in America. I don't know if you know my book, Mr. and Mrs. Prince, yes. that came out um, about 10 years ago. And it was about mm -hmm. two formerly enslaved people who lived in New England in the 18th century. It was a long time ago. And um, all the stories that had been written about them were written about other people, most of whom got the facts wrong. Oh, they claimed that their ancestor had freed them or things like that, you know, that proved not to be true. Um, I had a publisher ask me if I had a photograph of them. And I said, there was no photography in the 18th century, you know, what do you expect? Um, and there were no, you know, you don't, so if in general, you don't have your portrait painted, you don't have a journal, you're too busy getting on in life, you know, you don't, if you're literate, you don't necessarily sit down and pen your memoirs, you know, you're just trying to, to get going. Um, but on the other hand, there were people like Francis Barber, who was the servant of, of uh, Samuel Johnson and became his literary executor and heir at the end. Um, and that was much disputed and, and people were not very happy about that. So those kinds of people who were educated and were lucky enough to be known, I actually think that the people who are finding out the most now are people you don't expect. Genealogists who are starting to trace back family hmm. histories. Yes. A, lot of, a lot of white genealogists in Britain are finding that they have black ancestors and they didn't realize it. Um, well, anybody DNA. who's a big fan of, of you know, uh, find your roots with Henry Louis Gates yeah. Jr. He, it seems like he ends every episode saying, see how we're all connected more than we thought we were. It's, he's, he yeah. ends almost every episode with some yeah. version of that, which I, uh, so yes, I hear you. That's really fascinating that um, so many disciplines are sort of reevaluating and, and, and re-seeing. Yeah. <laughs> looking again, revisioning all of these histories. Yeah. You're reminding me when you talk about no photography in eight, from 18th century Britain, um, you're reminding me that not only are you and scholars like you having to unearth these unseen histories, but you're actually having to retell, retell stories where there's been a, a campaigns of basically very racist imagery. You write about the, you know, the constant reinforcing sexualization of um, black women from these times, but then all, just the pro-slavery uh, imagery and campaigns that were put out there, even the sentimentality. Um, you say that there's like sort of two versions, like even those that were anti-slavery at the time were sort of over, overly sentimentalized versions like we, think of Harriet Beecher Stowe and, you know, mm -hmm. doing a lot of good work, uh, I suppose, and having an influence, but mm -hmm. yet we need to revision those stories as well. And you, you mentioned that you're, you're just looking for the real people, <laughs> the real mm -hmm. people in the real places. So yeah. I guess just, what do you think of that, that you're not only having to unearth, it's actually having to, as you say, repaint these, these people. Well, I mean, just remember, I mean, it, it's all worked very differently in America and in yes. Britain. And, and the way that it's memorialized or remembered is very, very different. Um, mm -hmm. There were certainly black people in Britain from you know hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, 
but there was not slavery on their soil in the same way that it was here. So they were able to sexualize women by looking at the Jamaican plantations and what happens there with a lot of rape and a lot of um, um, uh, punishments. And But this is the country, um, Britain is, where the countries, I should say, where black minstrelsy was a television show until the 1970s. Um, it was uh, blackface minstrelsy was not only on television, but it was done in all the private homes. Um, but at the same time, um, in the 19th century, Uncle Tom's Cabin was the biggest thing going. People loved it. They were, it really spoke to them. So there was Uncle Tom wallpaper. There was, mm. um, you know, Topsy dolls. There were all sorts of things, you know. So you would go into a child's nursery and there could be wallpaper and dolls. Um, so that, that sense that America was terrible and look at us, we're so great. We abolished slavery before you did, um, takes away the fact that for the most part, the British actually supported the American South and the Civil War because their cotton came from there that fueled their textile mills in the North of Britain, um, that they really were, they didn't have the same kind of racism. It worked a little differently, but it certainly existed. Um, but there were lots of people who were just living among them who were not necessarily known, they weren't necessarily in a book and they were just sort of living their lives. And that's what I'm trying to write about now. But also mm -hmm. there's, I just really wanna have a shout out to some people who are working on these things now. Yes, please. Um, Miranda Kaufman's book, Black Tutors, really sparked a huge um, response. I mean, she speaks all the time. She's, she lives, I actually in Wales, and her mm. book on Black Tutors had, became a huge bestseller in England. And there was a lot of pushback when people said there were no Black tutors and she would show them the images of the people and and the all the documentation and they didn't want to believe it. Um, there. Mm. I belong with in a group that she started that is looking into black people in British portraiture and trying to identify who those people were. Um, and so far the list has over 300 British paintings that have black people in them. They're most often a small boy servant or something, um, but not always. And they're scattered all over. They're in private homes, they're in museums. So there, there is a, a kind of visual reality to all of this where you can see the people and you can understand a bit about their lives. And so people are going into the records trying to find out who were these people? Were they borrowed? Sometimes some painter would say, oh, you know, he's got a, a black servant. Let's put him in the picture and bring him over to your house for a while. Um, so, you know, trying to track them down is difficult, but there's just yeah. more and more evidence of this presence for um, ongoing presence. You point out um, now and in your works, just the way these stories have been played, have been part of popular culture through mm. the ages. And, and I guess our cultures, various cultures have worked out these stories and worked out some of these things either effectively or ineffectively on the stage. And so that brings me to um, your, much of your research deals with the Regency era, which happens to be where so many of contemporary culture retellings, fan fiction and, and romance is taking place. And then of course, we've got 
Bridgerton. Um, so mm -hmm. let me just start with a general question. We're talking about what people typically miss, but how are, how are you experiencing some of these cultural sort of inventions uh, today from your vantage point? What do these look yeah. like? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the heck out of this stuff. <laughs> I, <laughs> Just I'm, like a lot well, of us, I guess. Sanditon, I can let go. It was, I, I thought a travesty. Um, it was, it, it was, it, it, it kept some of the book, but it, it, it actually just took things in a direction that I found very difficult. So for example, in Sanditon, the Jane Austen novel, the fragment, cause it's incomplete. Yes. The heiress from the West Indies, Yes, is Miss Lamb. Miss, yeah, she is not. She is not necessarily identifiably black. They know she's mixed race. In the series, they made her a very dark-skinned woman to point out that she, in fact, was a black woman. They wanted to make that visual sense very strong for people, like, oh, we're we're dealing with a black woman here. Um, whereas I think in in Austin was more subtle and probably more accurate about how somebody like her would have been seen. But Bridgerton just went over the top and I just thought it was fabulous because um, we do know that um, Queen Charlotte probably had some mixed race background. She was the wife of King George III. Um, so she's presented as a, a, a mixed race or dark woman in not that dark in Bridgerton, but then yes. by just making everybody in it, you know, it was like saying, okay, what if we recognize that all these people were there and assuming that they could have made their way into the aristocracy, how mm -hmm. would this world have looked? And I think the visual treat of it all is, is just really great. And, um, and we all know that that is not how Regency England looked. But we can say, you know what? I would like to see what this looks like. If, if this could have been true, um, what would it have looked like? And of course, it's just like a visual feast anyway. It's not just the racial stuff. It's the clothes and the sets. And Tell us more, um, Professor Grazina, about Queen Charlotte. You did an entire, as we were talking about, an entire event with JASNA, the Jane Austen yeah. Society of North America, a zoom about these questions and this this sort of casting and 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 Black Britain and its history and there were hundreds of people on the Zoom but you, and you talked about Queen Charlotte and the chat room just went crazy. Um, oh, did it? I didn't yes. see the chat. <laughs> Everybody was just there was just so much discussion around this as you were talking. Um, <laughs> so it, so it was very very lively. So anyway, all of that to say, tell us about Queen Charlotte. She had, she, you know, she, you know, had Portuguese family so that they were a lot of that movement between North Africa, you know, the kind of what we would think of as North Africa today. And, um, but she probably had some ancestry through her Portuguese ancestors who might have been black. When I was doing some research on black people who left America moved to Canada after the Revolutionary War, the, those who, who had become the British patriots, the black ones, a lot of them went to Canada. So I was at, um, in Nova Scotia at a center there on black history in the province. And I noticed they had, I can't remember the picture was, I think it was a picture of Queen Charlotte on the wall. And I said, oh, what do you think of that? Do you think she was part black? And he said, oh, that, 
Princess Anne had come to visit many years before, had seen the portrait, was asked about it. And she said, well, everybody in the royal family knows she was part black. So that means to me that we've got, you know, we've got um, the the people wasn't the first, Meghan Markle wasn't the first. <laughs> so there is some history in there. It can't be necessarily proven, but it's pretty well seen as probably true that she had some Black ancestry and her portraits do seem to indicate that as well. But, you know, the other one I really like is David Copperfield. Um, yes. And what you have to do in these, same as in fiction, is you have to create a world that you will believe. You may not like all the characters, but you have to create a, vis a, a world that you are saying, okay, I, I'm, I'm willing to go into this world with you and see and believe, you know, it's the willing suspension of disbelief that I'm willing to do that. Do they create a world that I can believe in? Bridgerton, we know it's fantasy and fun with some historical elements. And yes, I'm willing to throw myself into that world. This is the Austin Connection. We're hearing in this episode from Professor Gretchen Gerzina. She's the author of many books connecting us with the stories of Black residents of Britain in history. In this next part of our conversation, we talk about Dido Elizabeth Bell. She was an heiress who lived in high society just before England's Regency era in the home of her great uncle, Lord Mansfield. Her story became the film, Bell. As Professor Gersina says, Austin's Mansfield Park has nothing to do really with the life of Dido Elizabeth Bell, but readers and researchers have speculated about the imaginative connection between this multiracial Regency heiress and Austin's outsider heroine, Fanny Price. All that's coming up next. But first, I asked Professor Gersina more about her early book, Black London, that was published about 25 years ago, and whether she feels we're getting any better at telling the stories of 18th and 19th century Black life in our histories on the page and on the screen. I was a graduate student at UCL in London. Um, during the, you know, 1994-95, and everybody was reading culture and imperialism. I literally saw people reading it on the tube in London. <laughs> um, nice. And I was, I was uh, falling in love with someone who was an Arab English person with the name Saidi, <laughs> close mm -hmm. to Edward Said's name. So I was, as a grad student in literature, also sort of wanting to dive into our, our views and our histories and how our, you know, um, race plays into that. Um, these conversations are still going. Edward Said even writes about Jane Austen and he writes about Mansfield Park and he writes really similarly to you writing at the same time, we need to investigate the unseen in these stories, um, tell the unseen stories, which is so much what you're doing as well. So my question is almost going on 25 years, are we getting any better at this, do you think? Well, you know, there's, there's, there's more being written and more being published all the time. Um, David Olasuga's uh, book and his tell all of his television programs in England are very well known. He's quite the face of Black British history and studies now. Um, others have been writing about it for decades, but I think what's interesting is that there's still a kind of resistance to it, to believing it. Um, 
there there are several things going on. One is, um, I don't know if you're aware of the report that the National Trust put out recently, which took a look, it, it hired some academics and some others to take a look at the colonial and imperial and slave connections between some of the National Trust houses. And I think they listed 93 houses in the National Trust that have some kind of connection. That wasn't to say that they were houses where there was plantation slavery or anything, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that the money that was earned either out of the slave trade or out of imperialism or out of colonialism funded and helped build and perpetuate those houses. A lot of the money that was earned came from originally from the slave trade and slavery and, and all of those absentee slave owners who had plantations in the West Indies, but also um, from the fact that when they, when the slavery ended in the West Indies in 1807, um, that they, decided to compensate the slave owners for the loss of the enslaved people who had lived on those plantations. The enslaved people were not compensated, but the slave owners were. And mm -hmm. a wonderful book and study done by Nicholas Draper about the legacy of all of this um, showed how all of that money that was made from that compensation built these houses, it funded the philanthropy, it funded a huge swathes of London um, were built based on that money um, mm. and all around the country. So they wanted to just say, hey, if you're gonna come to one of these houses, this is great. You can look at it, you can see it, you can appreciate the beauty of it. You can see how the generations of owners um, contributed to the culture and the landscape and all of that. But in fact, um, you should recognize that the money came from colonialism and from also from um, imperialism. You know, so the houses were filled with porcelain from China. They were built um, on land that used to be tenanted, but they put the, pushed the tenants off and hmm. you know made a beautiful landscape that made it look like it had always been there. And they had built these houses based on that money. When that report came out, the backlash was quite strong. People did not want to hear about this. They thought, why can't, why do we fund a national trust and it spends its money on being woke? Um, Interesting, but they don't see yeah. it as factual. They don't see it as history. Right. They see it yeah. as politics happening. Yes, they do. And I, there's also mm -hmm. some work being done now on um, updating the um, curriculum in schools. So some more of this is being learned at a younger age. That's interesting. So when you say, you know, in 1993, um, and you've been doing this ever since, among many other things, but mm -hmm. that you're reconstructing, you don't even just mean that figuratively. I mean, your, your writing takes us down the streets and really paints a visual mm -hmm. picture of Elizabethan England, and I would add to the landscapes and the, the houses also sugar and so much of the you know, economic foundations right. um, are part of what I think Edward Said was calling the interplay. You know, like that's mm -hmm. part of also what's unseen is that economic and the foundation is just part of that interplay. Um, yeah. you, you paint a picture of 
you know, Elizabethan England and England, Elizabeth the first. Um, and I also don't talk Re much about Elizabeth. <laughs> not too much, not too much, but, but Regency England then as well. Mm -hmm. And then even Victorian um, Britain mm -hmm. as, as being a very cruel and violent place. And I think that in many ways our, I don't know, our PBS adaptations <laughs> really do, you know, anesthetize these these histories in so many ways. You you also point out the the cruelty, the disease. But what I want to say, you know, besides the the cruelty, the the disease and the just the ignorance that was rampant in these times that we tend to forget about, probably mm -hmm. thanks to our screen adaptations partly. Mm -hmm. um, it was there was you found a community of black residents in London during these times, not just individual people who were famous, they were portrayed on the stage, um, mm. they were recounted in stories, um, and, and many of them were musicians, writers, sort of very fascinating individuals, but also a community. And that was, you talk about how difficult that was to unearth. Can you talk about how you unearthed this community and the difficulty in doing that? Actually, that really depended on the on the research of my predecessors. So a lot of that came from people who had been researching this for quite a long time. Yes. But I, in terms of community, there are people who've been doing tons of research since my book came out and they have been finding people and they've been finding communities. Some of the stuff, um, it, we, we can't be sure how much of a community there was, but we do know that there were, were communities. People lived in certain some places in certain areas, they were part of the fabric of the kind of working class. The, um, there were people that we called the Sons of Africa. Some people have questioned whether they were as many and met as frequently as, as were thought, but we don't know that, but we do know that they were there. Um, and it was interesting to just think of the fact that in all of these grand houses that had black servants um, that those servants if the households you know if they socialized with each other those servants were meeting in the kitchen <laughs> those servants were talking yes. and they you know and those servants were marrying the white servants um, because they were mostly black men and then you get a sense of just this kind of other world where if Samuel Johnson is having dinner with Sir Joshua Reynolds or with um, the great actors of the period that their black servants were probably hanging out, talking to each other. Um, so there was a kind of network of people definitely who, who were living then. Um, and then of course, after the Revolutionary War in America, when so many black people had been convinced to, work, to fight for the British in exchange for their freedom, a lot of them ended up in Britain that had been part of the promise. And so they came over in their hundreds. And that's they a, that's fascinating. That's yeah. fascinating to think. I think that you pointed out um, that something like 20% uh, of the armies voting on uh, fighting on both sides, which in the Revolutionary War with America mm. were um, black soldiers. Um, they came back to England. And then you also pointed out they were not allowed. They were actually banned from uh, learning crafts, learning trades. I'm not sure that they so much did, were banned from learning trades. They just found it mm -hmm. difficult to find work. And okay. also if, if they were poor, 
um, it's not so easy to move around in England at that mm. time. You know, I mean, physically it's difficult, but also it's often difficult to find work. Um, and if you, heaven forbid, get sick and die, you can't necessarily be buried where you're living because you're not part of that, officially part of that parish. So it's very different kind of system than we might. And so a lot of people who worked in, on the British side and obviously in, on the American side in the Revolutionary War were not just soldiers, but they were doing other things. You know, they were guides. They were helping to lead them through different, you know, terrain. They were, you know, they were, they were washing clothes. They were cooking. They were following them and giving them advice. You know, so and then they also did fight. Um, so yes, yeah. So they they worked in a variety of ways. And the British said, "Hey, come on our side, and we'll give you your freedom, and we'll give you a pension." And then lo and behold, the British lost and there they came. <laughs> okay, so Dido Bell and Mansfield Park, basically thoughts on that. Um, there's also the book, The, the Woman of Color. And, the, and, and there's, th this is sort of the you know, experience of, uh, I think it's Frances Barber and some of the others that you've mentioned, um, but for, for a young woman, what are, what are your thoughts on Mansfield Park? And is, is, there, is it possible that Jane Austen knew the story of Dido Bell? It, it's possible. I have to think about the timing of it all. So Dido Elizabeth Bell, of course, has nothing to do with Mansfield Park, although her, right. her great uncle who raised her was uh, Lord Mansfield, who yes. made a, a famous court decision that a Black person could not be returned to slavery in Jamaica. Um, and that was taken by many people to say that slavery was no longer legal in England and people ran away and said, hallelujah. But in fact, that's mm -hmm. not what the decision was. He also presided over the case of the Zong where a slave ship had thrown over a huge number of people um, when they were running out of food in order to collect the insurance. And he mm -hmm. came down hard on that case. Um, so Dido Elizabeth Bell was raised by him and, and um, but a lot of research has been done since the film Bell was made. Um, yes. and, and a lot of that film took a lot of liberties with it. So Dido was mixed race. Um, and her mother, she was not, Dido was not born into slavery. And that was a misconception a lot of people have and still have. Um, her mother actually came and lived in England near her, with her for some time, um, and then went back to uh, Pensacola. Uh, where she had been living and owned property. Dido became, was given some money. Um, and so she was able to marry. Um, and, but she didn't marry an abolitionist like the film said. Um, she married a man who'd been a steward to an important um, French family. And so that was still a high up position, but it was not you know, the big raging lawyer abolitionist. So, but she was uh, in the film, I mean, she was just stunningly beautiful. And I think mm -hmm. the biggest thing about it was that she, her portrait, which is a, por a double portrait of herself with her cousin, um, became the cover of my Black London book, was later reused mm -hmm. by the woman of color without my knowledge. So there's a lot of interpreting this portrait um, that people try to do. So I've spent a lot of time trying to track down the true story to use the research of these other people who've done such a good job. What would you like people to keep in mind as we are reading Regency era, whether we're reading romances, fan fiction, watching Bridgerton, watching <laughs> these adaptations? 
uh, but also so many hundreds of people or more engaging with you on these discussions yeah. and books. What would you like people to keep in mind as they're watching and reading Regency era histories and romance? I think just realize there is there are real people behind some of this. We know now that Jane Austen was likely um, an abolitionist, although we don't she didn't write political things in her novels. Um, we know that in um, Mansfield Park, there is mention of, we know that the money came from slavery um, mm -hmm. and then Antigua. That, that from Antigua. And so there was some reference to sugar and some other things in there. So we know that she's aware of it, um, but she doesn't make it front and center because that's not what she does as a novelist. Um, but I, I think it's really good for people who want to read these books that it was a more racially diverse society than people realized and that there were black people there and that in the places where she went and lived because she didn't she lived in a number of places she had to move around a lot um, that she would have seen people like this and so it's really good um, to remember that this was a very different world than people have now accepted it and i think to understand and accept that it, it makes it more interesting. It doesn't diminish it at all. Thank you very much, Professor Christina, mm. for talking with me. talking about the lives of Black residents of the Regency and 18th and 19th century Britain and how she's unearthing and revisioning the stories and histories of their lives. These are stories that have long been in the backdrop of Regency histories and screen adaptations, and scholars like Gerzina are working to bring these lives and stories center stage. These stories were center stage during the time that Jane Austen was living, imagining, and creating. Because it's all connected, I'm Plain Jane. Thank you for being here with us on the Austin Connection. Mm -hmm.